Can any of us seriously doubt that we're living at an extraordinary time? A number of years ago, I was at Stanford and asked one of those questions by a student that comes out of the blue. If you could be a member of any generation except the one you were born in, which one would you choose? I thought for a moment all sorts of possible answers. I was born in China, and I love the Greeks and the Romans, and I thought of all sorts of periods of history. But my answer was, I'd like to be a member of your generation. Because those who are now rising as adults are described as the crunch generation, in the sense that in our global era, many of the grand issues of the world are converging. And they will have to be answered in the adulthood of the rising generation if the world is to sail into calmer times. But if they don't answer them, or answer them badly, the world is truly in for rough sailing. I'm always surprised that in the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a tremendous stress in the Christian church, certainly in America too, about thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. But one of the things almost always missed is the biblical view of time. And you have an incredible sense of time, which is very distinctive in the Scriptures, of generations and days and hours and moments. And sometimes it's very positive. You think of the men of David who were skilled in reading the signs of the times. Or next week I want to look at one of the biblical examples of a positive one. But there are many negative ones too. Jeremiah, the prophet, taunts the Pharaoh of his day, King Bombast, the man who missed his moment. But the great negative ones in the scriptures are in the Gospels. Because of the way that Jesus' generation missed it in terms of him. And there are many, many examples of it. Jesus says, you can read the weather. You're all wonderful meteorologists, but you don't understand the day in which you're living. But the greatest of them all is the one that's buried in the Palm Sunday story, which you must have read many times on Palm Sunday, and yet maybe missed what Jesus is saying here about time. Now you remember the story. Our Lord is striding out ahead. He's come from the Transjordan, crossed the Jordan, and now he's in danger going towards Jerusalem. But he's ahead. And clearly he's been planning. And he sends them to get the donkey for him. And sitting on the donkey, the clouds Break out in the messianic welcome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees are shocked. Silence them. Blasphemy. But then as Jesus rounds the corner, and if any of you have been to Jerusalem, I gather many from your church have, you know that there are many ways to Jerusalem. Most of them are ways up. But there's one way down. And you go over the the crest of the Mount of Olives, and there's Jerusalem. And here's our Lord comes over the crest, sees Jerusalem with a golden dome of the temple down there, and he bursts into tears. 
Now, you have in this passage an extraordinary understanding of time. And I want you to dig into it and think of it in terms of where we are today in our world. The first thing you see in the story is the dramatic immediacy of the moment to Jesus. Everybody else is cheering and clapping and singing Psalm 118 and so on. Not our Lord. He weeps. What is it he sees? Now think of that little word, immediate. It's often said today that we're in a world of immediacy. We're the first generation in history to see all the events as they're happening. And we can communicate with instant immediacy. All sorts of things flow out of that. It's said that the various gaps which humans have always lived with have gone. For us, there's no gap between here and there. There's no gap between now and then. You just text and you communicate it. But there are other less, lesser gaps that are not quite so obvious. The gap between wish and fulfillment. As people said, when the credit card came, it removed the waiting from wanting. You didn't have to have the money, you just had to have the plastic. And it was yours. And of course, the gap between one thing and the next thing. And one of the marks of our generation is coming in faster and faster, stuff from all over the place. Jenny had dinner with her one of the campaign managers in the election not long ago, and between grace and dessert, he got 600 emails. How do you answer those at the end of the evening? Call this stuff, speed, stress, stuff. The gap between one thing and the next is incredible. Now, the root meaning of the Latin word immediate is there's nothing in between. But, of course, there's a lot in between for us, which is the media. And we're living in this mediated world. And some people only live in this world of virtual reality with their iPads and all sorts of things all day long. But just think, Jesus sees something this day, and he's the only one who sees it, and he has no technology at all. But he is crushingly aware of something that makes him burst into tears. Now, if you look at it carefully, you can see that there are three, not one, three time realities that our Lord is aware of. First, you can see he's aware of the day that was. He says, on this day, verse 42. In other words, on the surface, it was just one more day. We call it Palm Sunday. They didn't call it that. It was the first day of the week after the Sabbath. Everybody shared that day. Jesus, the disciples, the Pharisees, the Sadducees who weren't there that day. They were plotting back in Jerusalem. But whoever was there that day, the owners of the donkey, you name them. They all shared that day. Nothing terribly surprising about that. This day, Jesus says, a sunny spring day in Palestine. But Jesus sees two other days. He sees a day that will be. 
And our Lord is seeing now ahead down to A.D. 70 and the sack and destruction of Jerusalem. You probably know if you've got Jewish friends, there are three great black years that are the years of calamity. One of them is 586 B.C., when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. The second is A.D. 70, when the future emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem. And the third, the early 1940s, when Hitler tried to destroy the Jews altogether. But here's the second one. And we now know, of course, the history. In A.D. 66, a bunch of Jewish zealots seized the fortress of Antonia, which you've probably seen. And the Romans sent in four crack legions, 70,000 troops. Three of the legions came up from the west, and one of them came from the east, and put its siege camps and its great machines exactly where our Lord was weeping. And the 70,000 troops besieged Jerusalem. And very cannily but cruelly, they allowed all the worshippers for the festivals to go in so that the city was swollen with a population and didn't have enough food. And then when they finally went in, they killed 1,100,000 Jews. And you can see the story portrayed on the Arch of Titus today in Rome. Josephus says anyone who knows the Jews could only lament. And here's our Lord in the early 30s, looking all these decades down, and he sees what's going to happen, and not one stone will be left on another. So, this day... And the day that's coming. But many people don't notice that our Lord speaks of a third time reality. If only on this day, he said, you had seen the way that leads to peace, the road to peace. But you missed it. There was another possibility. Now, we can't speculate too deeply because we can't go too far. But somehow our Lord is saying there was a moment that they could have responded differently and they didn't. They missed it. And all that was coming was because they missed it. Now, we can't speculate because we know on the one hand that there was no other way. Wasn't he the lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Of course. He said early in his ministry, I didn't come to serve, or rather to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Clearly, all roads lead to Rome and all moments in our Lord's life lead to Jerusalem and the cross. There was no other way. And yet, and yet, our Lord talks of a way they could have taken, but they've missed. And somehow... What they're doing this day and what would be coming and the way they could have gone crushes our Lord and he weeps. The dramatic immediacy, but he's the only one who sees it. The second thing you can see in the passage 
is the deep intensity of our Lord. This is the word used. If we'd had our quizzes up here, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Everybody knows that has been to Sunday school more than a day or two. What is it? There you are. John chapter 11, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, the answer to a million and one Sunday school questions. Now, in fact, in John 11, there's much more interesting things than that, which is the anger of Jesus. But that's not my point this morning. Jesus wept, truly. But in John 11, when it says that Jesus wept, it's contrasted with the mourners around Mary and Martha. The word used of the mourners could be put into English, they wept and wailed. Desolate, forlorn, hopeless. That's not the word used of Jesus. The word used of Jesus in John 11 and the word used here and also in Gethsemane, he was dissolved. He was crushed in grief. A deep, deep, passionate grief. Now think of leadership today in America. I remember long before I came here reading a story of the Kennedys having touched football at Hyannisport. And one of the teenagers was knocked down and started to cry. And one of the older ones picked him up. Kennedys don't cry. Do you remember when Edmund Muskie, in this congregation, we can remember that, some of us. Edmund Muskie's campaign and the tears on the steps in New Hampshire and his campaign was virtually over. Now, certainly Ronald Reagan at the Challenger explosion had just the touch of a tear in his eye, but that was touch of a tear no more. You don't cry as Jesus cried. Now, think of other religions. Any of you ever read the Hindu scriptures? Such is their view of God. It says the wind doesn't touch him, the fire doesn't touch him. He's beyond, 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 beyond. Have you ever seen a weeping Buddha? No. Big, fat, happy, chuckling Buddhas, all sorts of Buddhas. But Buddha never weeps for the world. Our Lord does. Our Lord does. Openly, profoundly, he weeps for the world. Of course, on the Sunday, it's tears. On Friday, it'll be drops of blood. On Sunday, Palm Sunday, it's emotional. On Friday, on the cross, it will be physical. But our Lord takes it deeply into himself. But here's the point, the third one. The dull insensitivity of everybody else. Our paper in Washington is the Washington Post, and they always advertise it with the line, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Here is the great day when the world didn't get it. Nobody got it that day. The Sadducees certainly didn't. They weren't here in the story at all. They're back in Jerusalem plotting. Their concern is self-preservation. Better they get rid of one man than have the Romans come down on all of them as a nation. Better that one man die. The Pharisees didn't get it. They were concerned about the decorum and the potential, etc., etc. But the crowd didn't get it. 
They were singing the Messianic hymns. They were right about Jesus, but premature. And we can see rather shallow, and a week later, crying out, crucify him. But most extraordinary of all, the disciples didn't get it. But if you've read the Gospels, they never did get it. And again and again it says that Jesus says this, that, and the other, and they understood nothing of this. And when that comes in early in Luke, Jesus is not talking heavy theology that we'd have to bring on Rachel White or people who've been to seminary and studied their Greek and Hebrew to help us understand. No, Jesus is talking like a journalist. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, tried, condemned, killed. Words we all understand, but it said they didn't get it. And on this day, nobody gets it. Now, how does this come home to us? How do we live like the men of David who were skilled in reading the signs of the times and not like Jeremiah uh, the, of his day, the Pharaoh, not like the disciples and everyone in this day who just didn't get it? Well, I think if we look at the scriptures, there's some challenging things that we have to learn in terms of understanding our time. There's a negative and a positive. The negative one is to ask the Lord to clear up all the false lenses that we have through which we're seeing him wrongly. Why didn't the disciples get it? Well, if you read all the Gospels with care, you can see some of them had false public lenses, political lenses. You take the zealots. They wanted a Judas Maccabeus. They wanted a conqueror on horseback. Drive out the Romans. And any idea of a donkey? A suffering servant? Well, that wasn't what they wanted at all. He was shatteringly wrong. And they simply didn't get it. Augustine fought that problem in his time. In the time of St. Augustine, Rome had just been converted and was now, after 380, officially Christian. And people were saying that as the Roman Empire fell, so the Great Commission would be fulfilled. And Augustine says, no. And when they watch Rome sacked by the Visigoths, the church went on strongly because he'd helped the church separate from their over-identification with Rome. And we've got to remember, we're always Christ's people first. We thank God for our countries. America, England, France, Germany, China, whatever it is. We thank God for the genuine things of patriotism, which are good, but not nationalism. And always our Lord is over and above our citizenship. And yet you could see in our Lord's own time, many people didn't get him because of this false public lens, false political lens, particularly of the sort of conqueror they were expecting. But you can see other disciples had a false personal lens. Take James and John and their mama. When you come into your kingdom, Lord, the best seats for my son. You've got it all wrong. We're not talking about power and ego and the best seats. 
And often we can get our own longings and aspirations and hopes and dreams and ambitions all tied in with the Lord too. And so we're not really seeing him as he is. And we constantly have to say, Lord, clear my lenses, clear the filters through which I'm seeing you, that I may really see you. But in the rest of the New Testament, you can see other things that help us understand. And above all, in the book of Acts, it is following the Holy Spirit. Take, say, the spread of the gospel. How does the gospel get to Africa? And I love the fact it got to Africa before it got to Europe. The Spirit spoke to Philip, who went and met the Ethiopian eunuch. How did it get to Europe? Paul didn't want to go to Europe. He wanted to go to Bithynia, Asia Minor. He was determined, but he was checked and blocked and frustrated. Then, presumably, incredibly puzzled, the vision of the man from Macedonia. And one historian said, when that little rabbi, unknown, crossed from Asia to Europe, the whole of world history was changed. How did the gospel get to us, the Gentiles? Because presumably the great majority of us are Gentiles today. The Spirit blew the prejudices of dear old Peter. And down he went to take it to the centurion. And so on and so on. Now, let's be honest today. Many of us are not very good at listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be cleared from our false lenses and learn to follow discerningly the promptings of the Holy Spirit that we may understand our times. Because we are in extraordinary times. Our privilege and our challenge, more of this on the Monday nights, is to live at the end of 500 years of Western dominance. But it's gone. Potentially to live at the beginning of the decline of the great American Republic. And certainly to have to face the profound cultural captivity of the church in this country, which is numerically strong, but spiritually and culturally very weak. We're in an extraordinary time, and we need to have people, men and women of God, who understand the times, and by God's grace, don't miss the moment.